Welcome to Discovering You, a podcast that explores the intricacies of personality and how it impacts the way we navigate through life. What will you discover today? Thank you for joining me on episode two of Discovering You. On the first episode, we explored DISC as a behavioral model, and I gave you a brief history and overview of what it means and how it can be applied. And I used some fun comparatives to bring it to life. For instance, if DISC was social media, it would look like Twitter for dominance, Instagram for influence, Facebook for steadiness, and LinkedIn for compliance. Today, we're going to go a bit deeper and get more of an understanding of what the low factors of DISC mean too. I find in general that people have a good sense of what high D, I, S, and C are, but they don't always know what the lower counterparts represent. As always, I like to find a fun way to illuminate it. Today, I'm going to bring the Enneagram into our discussion. I find that a lot of people are really interested in the Enneagram and have a decent level of understanding. If you haven't heard of it, don't worry. I will do my best to explain it at a high level for the purposes of today's conversation. And down the road, I definitely plan to take a deeper dive into the Enneagram because it is so multi-layered and an incredible tool to help with self-awareness and understanding and connecting to others. So Heather, I think you've done yours recently. Yes? I did. I just did it a few days ago. Have you done one? I have done one and I might actually get you to guess mine. <laughs> because you work with me and you know all of my idiosyncrasies of my personality. So <laughs> so this might be fun, listeners. It's going to be fun. Okay. The Enneagram, for those of you who aren't familiar... It's a system of personality which describes people in terms of nine types. Like DISC, you may have more than one, but usually one is going to be the dominant. I did this exercise with some of my clients last year, and it was really fascinating to see how many people's DISCs lined up with their Enneagram pairings. So let me just say, this part isn't an exact science. This is just a little bit of fun I was doing to see, could I pick out some commonalities between the two and do they line up? Listeners, if you know your DISC and Enneagram profiles, I'd love to hear your feedback on this too. Okay, let's dive in. Enneagram type number one is called the reformer or the perfectionist. This type is principled, purposeful, self-controlled, perfectionistic. They strive to do things to very high standards and avoid making mistakes at all costs. They are all about rules and details. They strive to live a life with purpose and they seek the best and most correct way to do things. Words like responsibility and diligence factor into their everyday lives. To make it fun and relatable, some famous public figures who are type ones are Michelle Obama, Brene Brown, Steve Jobs. To connect this to DISC now, the DISC profile that aligns with type one is a combination of a high C and a low I. If you're someone who's familiar with DISC, you probably already guessed at the high C correlation. To remind you, C is high in compliance. That's what C stands for. So high Cs tend to be rule followers, detail-oriented, perfectionistic with a strong compass for what is right and wrong. For the second part of the equation, here's a chance to explore what low I means. If you listen to the first episode, you'll know that low does not mean bad, high does not mean good, there are positives associated with all the low disc factors as well as the high ones. 
People who have low I in their profile tend to be very practical, logical, analytical. They are not swayed by emotional impulses and will choose to do what makes sense objectively. So if you're a high C and a low I, you may just be an Enneagram type number one. I find that fascinating. I'm curious, why does this type have two names? Yes, good question. Not all of them do. As I move on, you'll see. It's interesting. I think it's one of those things where if you really take a deep dive into Enneagram, they will kind of show you things like Enneagram at its best and your Enneagram at its worst. And depending on the way you're looking at it, I think the best part of this type is the reformer word. And and so what that means is they're trying to do the right thing. They are being perfectionistic, but usually it is for a greater cause. It's to get something done right. It's to help people. So often that whole moral compass and trying to show people the way, it's about this cause, this purpose that they are after, and they really want to enlighten and include people. That's maybe not always received that way. And the perfectionist part of it can definitely rear its head where I have to do this right. This has to be done perfectly. That's why it's interchangeable. But one of the people I mentioned, Brene, think she's a really good example. And those of you who are familiar with Brene's work, and Heather, I know that you are, and we both listened to that podcast as well. I think she's a really good example because she is really clear about being honest and vulnerable, one of her favorite words, right? Think of what she's doing. Yes, she has these things in her mind. Yes, she has to do them to the standard, but she is out there really educating companies, individuals, businesses, the world. So there's the reformer part of that. I'm also going to add a little interesting stat because I did this uh, on episode one with DISC, but about 10% of the population are type one. So I'm going to go through it and I'm going to let you know. With nine of these, it's pretty evenly spread, but you're going to see that some of them are more represented than others. So this type, type one, 10% of the population. Hmm. Okay, moving on to type two. Type two is called the helper or the giver. Those two are a little bit more similar. This type is generous, demonstrative, people-pleasing, and are helpful, nurturing, and caring towards others. They're really defined by their need to belong and to be loved by others. They enjoy putting a smile on their face, and because of this, they emit a vibe of approachability. Some famous examples of type two are Jennifer Garner, Mr. Rogers, (laughs) Drew Barrymore, The disc profile that most closely correlates to this would be high I and low D. You'll remember, if you listened to last episode, individuals who are high in influence have this really natural affability and people are drawn to them. They're optimistic and sensitive and will often go with their gut versus taking an analytical approach. That right away is very different than the last type that I just talked about, right? Which was all about logic analysis. For the low D connection, people who have low dominance in their profiles tend to be very accommodating, conciliatory, consultative. And I'll always say that low D takes the catching more flies with honey than vinegar route. <laughs> low D can achieve, that's funny, Heather. <laughs> yeah. Low D can achieve the same things as high D, but with a gentler approach. And what's interesting about this personality style is that women are more likely to be this type. So again, this represents 11% of the population. Again, if we're looking at there's nine of them, or are we basically going to be looking at just over 10 for each one of them? 
Out of the 11%, 15% are women and 7% are men. It's twice as likely that women are going to be type 2. Do you find that interesting for this style, Heather? That doesn't surprise me from a nurturing standpoint. Mm-hmm. The part that actually interests me was that the low D can achieve the same things mm-hmm. as a high D, but with a gentler mm-hmm. approach, which do they have the drive to achieve differently? That's a good point. I will say that the drive for high Ds tends to be really, really strong. What I mean specifically when I say they can achieve the same things is that they can ask a question in a way that's a little bit more of an accommodating approach. So for instance, a high D might say, here's an idea, I think we should do this. And a low D would say, I have an idea. I think this might work. What do you think? So I think they're still going to get there. It's going to be, again, that gentler approach. In terms of that really strong drive, I think people can definitely be driven if they don't have a high D, but I would say that high Ds do have that extra drive. The next Enneagram, I think, I'm actually going to talk a little bit about that high drive. Awesome. The next one is type three, which is called the achiever. Type threes are goal-oriented, adaptable, image conscious, and ambitious. They want to be seen as significant, and they attempt to do this through their achievements. Outwardly, they appear confident, but they do look to their accomplishments to validate their self-worth. It's important to them that others view them as successful, because failure is not an option. Celebrity examples of type three are Beyonce, Tony Robbins, and Taylor Swift. The corresponding disc profile for the achiever is a high D and a low S. Individuals with high dominance in their profile are driven, determined, motivated, and focused on the end result. Their motivation is intrinsic versus extrinsic, meaning they don't need external factors to inspire them. They have an engine running inside of them that keeps humming along regardless. They aren't afraid to take risks and try new ventures in the pursuit of success. They fear failing at something, but that doesn't mean they fear trying. That's the difference. Sometimes people think the fear of failure means you're not even going to try it. No, these are going to try it. It's just like, yeah, I got to accomplish this. This is not an option to fail. So that's really what that means. The low S contributes to this personality type as people who are low in steadiness are very adaptable. They can pivot when they need to. Low S's operate at a very quick pace and they are great at multitasking. Does that sound familiar, Heather? (laughs) It does, actually. I can relate with this type really well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so. Sounds like me. And you have that restless energy of low S. So the restless energy of low S combined with the ambition of high D certainly makes for an achiever. And yeah, low S's are good at multitasking. So I know just from working with you, Heather, that you're able to start a whole bunch of things. You're like, well, let's just get started on that. And for me, I'm kind of like, oh, should we finish that first? Should we, should we make sure that's... There's a really good difference between high S and low S. I'm high S. I definitely like to finish things, get them all wrapped up in a bow before I move on to the next thing. It's good that we have each other to kind of challenge those boundaries. Absolutely. <laughs> and for this one, it's about 11% of the population. The ones that I'm not commenting on, if I'm not giving you male, female, it's because it's a fairly even split. The ones where there is a difference, I'm going to point that out. Type four is called the individualist. Expressive, creative, temperamental, and distinctive. Fours are motivated by their desire to be unique and express their individuality. 
they like to amplify what is different and special about them. So they are really going to call attention to that fact. Some people might feel insecure about it or hide it. They really want to let you know about it. They have a strong sense of identity and are passionate about self-expression. They are independent thinkers and creators. Public figures with this Enneagram type are Edgar Allan Poe, Billie Eilish, Kurt Cobain. Now, to align it with DISC, it would be a combo of high I and low C. The particular part of high influence that connects to the individualist is the expressive emotional part. High eyes are often guided by their emotions, and it's a key element of who they are. They wear their hearts on their sleeves and are capable of being incredibly vulnerable when others wouldn't. The flip side of this is that high eyes will feel the sting of rejection more strongly than other factors. Because they are willing to be open and vulnerable, it hurts if that doesn't come back to them. As much as I can when I'm working with high eyes, either in one-on-one coaching or group workshops, I let high eyes know about this, more to take a load off them than anything else. Often they feel that they are the only ones who feel this sensitive or something must be wrong with their approach. But more often than not, it's not about that. It's about the other person's profile. Perhaps it's a high C and that person is more private and reserved, so they don't interact in the same manner. It doesn't mean that they don't like you high eyes, I promise. Now, for the low C part of the individualist type. Low Cs are very autonomous. They're known to be out-of-the-box thinkers. They can put their fingerprint on a situation or a project in an unusual way. Having a low C in a brainstorming session is incredibly valuable, and I always recommend it to groups when they're working. They can look at a roadblock and not be limited by the boundaries that others see, but come at it from a different angle. Honestly, it may not always be a viable solution, but even when it isn't, it shakes up the groupthink and brings a fresh perspective. For this type, it's about 11% of the population. It's interesting to me because we just did have a group meeting. Yes. I'm just guessing that there's an individualist in our group Mm -hmm. and this aligns with them exactly. (laughs) And the brainstorming and the ideas and you're like, where did that all come from? Right. Again. I'm speaking candidly. Now that I'm starting to understand other people's profiles, yeah, they're not trying to steal the show or they're not trying to do all of these things. They just are so creative. Absolutely. That's sort of the second part of it. The first part of it is always the self-awareness, understanding, and sort of how do I come across in the world? The second part is what things can I see that I now can recognize and can figure out what that is? I'm not misconstruing it. So for instance, for you saying, oh, that person doesn't necessarily try to be the center of attention, but this is someone who is spontaneous, who can come up with ideas on the spot and is very likely this individualist. You're not going to look at that anymore and have the wrong impression. You're going to have really good insight into what that's all about. I used to think if I was doing that, it would be because of this. Yeah. And now I understand that what motivates me isn't what motivates them. Exactly. It's been a game changer. Yeah, you nailed it because that is the number one thing we do. We ascribe the wrong intention to the behavior we're seeing because it's not the behavior that we do. We know what's in our head. So we think, oh, if I were to speak in that tone, I'd be really mad. Well, that doesn't mean that that person is really mad in order to speak in that tone. So that is a game changer. That can really, really change the way that we go forward and connect and understand one another. It's amazing. Okay, so moving on to type five. Type five is called the investigator. They are insightful, intellectual, analytical, and are the most introverted of the nine types. Now, right here, I want to put a pin in the word introverted 
because I'm going to be discussing introversion, extroversion, ambiversion in a future episode. But for now, please let me clarify, there is no negative connotation to the word introverted. To be continued. Investigators are driven to be lifelong learners and accumulate as much knowledge as possible. They direct their energy towards intellectual pursuits and feel that they have to safeguard that energy from being depleted by others. They have clear boundaries between family, friends, and work. They think extensively before speaking, and they tend to be subject matter experts. Recognizable people who are type fives are Mark Zuckerberg, Jane Goodall, Albert Einstein. The DISC profile associated with the investigator is high C and low D. You'll recall that high Cs are about facts versus feelings. They're logical, systematic, detail-oriented, and interested in learning as much as they can about the subject at hand. They tend to be specialists in their chosen field of study or interest. Now, the low D correlation comes into play through the lack of a quick response. Investigators and low Ds want to take their time to process and ensure that they are getting it right instead of a knee-jerk answer. For this one, we're looking again around 10% of the population. And in this case, this tends to be more men than women. We're looking at 14% men and 7% women. What do you think about that, Heather? Does that one surprise you or no? I am a little. It's interesting, right? Because it's the facts versus feelings. And I think what you said in the earlier one about women having a very nurturing side to them. So perhaps this is why this comes out with more men, because we're not necessarily looking at the feelings here. We're just looking at the facts. So maybe that's where it comes into play. When you say it like that, then it makes perfect sense. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That was the first five Enneagram types. And we're going to look at the remaining four on the next episode because it's now time for our listener question. Heather, what's our question today? Okay. Today's listener question is, I found the breakdown of DISC factors across the general population fascinating. How does that play out in relationships? Do couples Hmm. tend to have the same profiles? How does that work? I'm not surprised. This is a popular question. I get asked it a lot and it may surprise you. Do you have a guess, Heather? My guess is that they are not the same profile and that potentially the, it's not a cliche, the quote opposites attract maybe comes into play. Oh my gosh. That is so funny. I have to tell you a story about that. That's exactly right. So it does surprise people, but it's very common for couples to have really different profiles to each other. And yes, there is that saying, opposites attract. I've been watching this play out with my clients for years. And I would say, uh, not an exact science, so this is just going on my database and my clients, I would say about eight out of 10 of them have opposite disks. And I should add when I'm saying this, that these are happy relationships and marriages. (laughs) That's important. And it makes sense because if you think about a business partnership, you would want to ensure that you have all the bases covered. If you're not structured or detail-oriented, it would be a good idea that your business partner is. This way, you would fill the gaps, avoid tunnel vision, have someone for checks and balances. Having said that, that's well and good, but how does it play out with these differences? Heather, you mentioned the opposites attract, so it reminded me of this story when I was getting my DIS certification. The instructor talked about that, and she said, opposites attract and then attack. (laughs) So we all laughed and it's sort of a saying that they have there, but it does happen. If I could give you a simple example of that, let's look at someone with a high I profile and they're married to a high C profile. During a discussion or a disagreement, 
The high I will likely be coming from a place of emotions, right? They'll be passionate. You'll see feelings. The C will, of course, be having feelings, but they're going to be coming at it from a place of logic and facts. You can see how the wires could get crossed here. The C might be telling the high I, you know, things like calm down, be rational, which of course will upset the high I, and they will feel that the high C is being cold, aloof, maybe detached. Does this sound familiar to anyone? The great thing about understanding DISC is that when you understand where the behavior you're seeing is coming from, you won't misinterpret it. I tell this story quite often when I'm speaking, but I was married for a number of years before I got into this career. I certainly felt like I knew my husband really well, and there were certain behaviors that I didn't love, (laughs) but I accepted it. By the way, I feel like I really have to add here, he's a super high D, if that helps explain what I'm referring to. What changed, though, is my DISC knowledge allowed me to understand the behavior that I was seeing rather than just accept it. And of course, truth be told, I was misreading it. And Ds are often misunderstood. So there you go, Ds. Shout out. I I teased you, but now I'm defending you. Anyway, that's sort of a a long answer to it. And I do want to emphasize, as I always do, DISC is optimally used for the workplace. So it's not marriage counseling, even though several of my clients have told me that it was for them. (laughs) So Heather, you were right. That's awesome. I truly see the value in the DISC profiles for our team at work, but I can see how it can also be valuable in understanding the personality profiles of the people in your family. Absolutely. I love where these listener questions are taking us in these conversations. I hope that people remember to send in your questions. I agree. I think it's a lot of fun and it allows us to have some level of interaction. So yeah, please send in your questions. Always curious to read them and really enjoy answering them. Thanks for listening and join me next time for part two of our Enneagram DISC conversation. 